Right, so Malachi chapter chapter 1, verse 1, the burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, yet you say, in what way have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? Yet Jacob I have loved, and Esau, uh, but Esau I have hated, and laid waste his mountain and his heritage, and the jackals of the wilderness. And so, you know, we looked at this passage last week in its, in its context, context, you know, and when we read those, those words, uh, you know, it, it's surprising to us. It's not something we expect to see in the Scripture. You know, we, we know that Scripture tells us in 1 John chapter 4 that God is love. God is love. That is an essential part of His character. He is omnibenevolent. He is all-loving, and He commands us to love Him with all of our hearts, and He commands us to love our neighbors and to, to, to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. And, uh, and, and so when we read these words, we, you know, we stop and, and, and are surprised. And, uh, and, and we, we find such comfort in God's love that we don't really know how to handle Esau I have hated. And, uh, and so we're, we're going to unpack that a little bit. And uh, last week the question was asked, was there any other, in the Scripture, is Esau the only person that we're told that God hates? And uh, actually, no, there, there's quite a few uh, passages that talk of God's hatred. Um, Hosea chapter 9, verse 15 is one. All their wickedness is in Gilgal, for there I hated them. Because of their evil deeds, I will drive them from my house. I will love them no more. All their princes are rebellious. And as we read through the Scripture, we're told that God hates idolatry. He hates child sacrifice, uh, which ought to be attention-getting in America as we uh, murder a thousand unborn, an average of a thousand unborn babies a day in the United States of America. We should be taken aback by the fact that God hates child sacrifice. How many American children have been sacrificed on the altar of convenience or self-centeredness? He hates sexual immorality. <laughs> also a, a warning statement for us, our nation. He hates those that do evil. Psalm chapter 5, verse 4 Psalm 11.5 Psalm 11.5 actually says God is angry with the wicked every day. Proverbs 6.16 6, and 19 lists seven things that the Lord hates. He hates pride, lying, murder, evil plots, those who love evil, false witnesses, and troublemakers. And, uh, and, so, uh, and notice that the, the passage does not just say that God hates sin. You know what? You remember... A couple years ago, we, we did a series in Sunday school of things that people in the Bible Belt know that's not true. Do y'all remember that series? Well, one of those things is that God loves, uh, hates sin and loves the sinner. The reality is that sin so permeates and affects us, there is no difference. I mean, sin corrupts us to the very core of our being. Our attitudes, our affection... Our bodies, everything about us is corrupted by sin. And, uh, and, and when God punishes sin, how does He punish sin? By punishing the sinner. Who goes to hell? The sinner. And so, uh, um, so God cannot judge sin without judging the sinner. Lying always involves a liar. Murder always involves a murderer. A, a sexual, uh, sexual immorality always involves someone who is committing, uh, who is sexually immoral. And so, uh, so God hates those who love evil. False witnesses. Troublemakers. The Scripture tells us. And so... Uh, we read this, we are so conditioned to think about God as love that when we're confronted with the fact that God hates, it takes us by surprise. And maybe that's part, you know, uh, you guys know what a caricature is? Okay. Yeah, so it's a, it's a drawing that, that distorts an individual. And, and the, the, the caricature artist will, will a lot of times 
grab a hold of one characteristics of a person and kind of exaggerate it. You know, like somebody who's got a little big, big nose, their character would have a really, really, really big nose. <laughs> you know, so they, they take that one aspect of the person and exaggerate that and, and blow it out of proportion, and that becomes actually the, the center of the picture. Well, I, I think a lot of times as American Christians, we might have a caricature image of God where we've taken love, the love of God, and we've distorted it so large that it kind of obscures or drowns out other attributes, other characteristics of God. And so, uh, so, so maybe we have an image of God in our mind that's a little bit distorted, and, uh, uh, and, and we, we'll go to those passages that provide comfort, that reinforce what we want to believe, and we don't necessarily dig into the passages that shock that, like Malachi 1.3, Esau, I have hated. And so, so as we think about this, and, and actually uh, the, the, one of the bottom lines of this is it should not surprise us that God hates Esau. It, what should surprise us is that God loved Jacob. <laughs> That's what should be surprising. Because you know, remember who Jacob, you know, Jacob is a liar. Jacob is a deceiver. Jacob is, is self-sufficient and self-dependent. Uh, Jacob is trying to work his own way to his ingenuity and his scheming and his deception and stealing and all these things. And, you know, all these things that Proverbs says God hates, Jacob is. He's a polygamist. He has four wives. He is... Uh, uh, he, 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 he runs his family in such a way that his family is totally dysfunctional. And so what should really surprise us is not that God hated Esau, but that God loves Jacob. And I think that's uh, part of Malachi's point. And so, so the first thing when we think about this is let's think about who God is. God is love, but God is also holy, holy, holy. You remember those angels and uh, those uh, seraphim in Isaiah chapter 6? Isaiah saw the Lord. He was high and lifted up. And the angels were saying, He is holy, holy, holy. God is light, and in Him there is no darkness. God is good, and God is the author of all that is good and that is right and is true. God is holy, holy, holy. And that also means He is transcendent. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. So high is, are His thoughts above ours as the heaven is above the earth. And, uh, and we are limited and finite and we cannot fully grasp the extent of God's holiness. He is transcendent. He is totally different from us. And so the first thing we have to think about is who God is. God is holy. God is righteous. God is true. God is good. And then the second thing we have to think about to understand this is we have to understand... Who we are. Who people are. Human people. Jacob and Esau. And every single descendant of Adam and Eve. And so, God is holy and we are sinners. We are sinners. We have all sinned. Proverbs says that they list seven things that God hates. Well, guess what? We're all proud. We're all lying. We've all uh, uh, been angry with our brother in our heart for no reason, which Jesus says is murder. Uh, we scheme. We plot. We, we don't tell the truth. We make trouble. All these things that God hates, we are. We do. We love the created thing more than we love the Creator. Idolatry. We plot evil. We use His name in vain. We steal. We lust. We have selfish anger. We are slaves to sin. And we cannot do anything but sin. We're sinners by nature. And as soon as we're capable of moral action, we become sinners by choice. We have broken God's law, and sin has affected every single part of us. Our hearts, our emotions, our mind, our thoughts, our intellect, our judgment, the way we perceive the world, the way we perceive cre creation is distorted. Our will, we choose to do things that are against God's law, that are displeasing to Him. Our inclinations, our affections, we've seared our conscience. Sin has 
totally affected us to the very core of our being. That's why we get sick, because of sin. Very, our DNA code, our genetic code. That's why sometimes babies are born genetically damaged or deformed as a result of sin. It even affects our genetic code. Sin affects every single thing about us, every fiber of our being, every single cell, every thought, every attitude, every word, every action has been corrupted by the, 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 the destroying influence of sin. It goes so deep that we cannot do anything on our own that is spiritually good. There is none that is righteous no, not one. We cannot do anything in our own strength and our own power that would be pleasing or acceptable to God. We have a natural inclination toward evil. A child does not have to be taught to sin. It comes naturally because we are by nature slaves to sin. We're by nature haters of God. We can do nothing and we will never do anything that is not infected with sin. We do things we're not supposed to do and we don't do the things that we're supposed to do. And we sin in ignorance, and we sin intentionally. So we are sinners. God is holy, and we are sinful. Jacob and Esau, uh, uh, sinful. Sinful from the womb. And the same is true of all people. Alright, so God is holy. We are sinful. And then the third thing we have to consider is how... Should a holy God respond to sin? With anger, with opposition. He should stand against sin. He should stand against evil. And, and that's what hatred means, to oppose, to reject, to stand against, to, to loathe. And so we would expect a holy God who created us for His glory, created us in His image, for His glory, for the purpose of filling the world with His image bearers, reflecting His glory, but we sinned, and instead of filling the world with His glory, we filled the world with our sin. How would we expect a righteous and holy and good God to respond to that with opposition? We would expect a holy God to, uh, to oppose sin, to reject sin. And you know, God told Adam and Eve, if they disobeyed Him, they would die. And when they sinned, they died spiritually. They were separated from God. He cast them out of the Garden of Eden, and He put a cherubim with a flashing sword to guard the way to the entrance. And so Adam and Eve were cast out of His presence, and God ensured that those sinful people would never come back into His presence in their sinful state, because if they did, they would be consumed by His holiness. And so God's casting them out of the Garden and putting the cherubim there with a the flashing sword was an act of mercy. Because He is too holy to look upon sinners, and if they came into His presence in their sinful state, they would be consumed by His holiness because that's how a righteous and holy God responds to sin. And so, uh, uh, sin and death, when, when Adam and Eve sinned, they died spiritually, they were cast out of God's presence, and then that sin infected every single person who is a descendant of Adam and Eve. And all of their descendants are are sinners by nature and as soon as they become capable of choosing they choose according to their nature and therefore they sin and so why do all people die because all people have sinned and so uh so so we would expect a righteous and a holy god to be opposed to sin and, and, and you know we we wouldn't want a god that would you know, just kind of tolerate evil, look the other way when there's wickedness. You know, it wouldn't be uh, a good God that did not stand in opposition to that which opposes Him, that which is evil. Um, and, and the Bible tells us that the wrath of God is being revealed against all in the godliness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. We're told that God is angry with the wicked every day. We're told of a great flood where God destroyed every creature except for eight people. We're told of Sodom and Gomorrah where God rained down fire and brimstone on those sinful cities and consumed those sinners, those sinful people. And so we would expect a holy God to stand in opposition to evil and those who do evil. 
Uh, we want a righteous judge to stand in opposition to the wicked and the depraved. So, uh, so God is holy. We are sinful, and you know we we want a holy God to respond to evil with justice. All right. So, so uh, the fourth thing let's consider is let's consider how God hates. Now, when we read that word hatred, what comes to our mind is the hatred that we experience. The hatred that we see. Human hatred, and human hatred is corrupted by sin. But God's hatred has no such corruption. God's hatred is holy and just and pure and true and right. We, like everything else, we have corrupted hatred. Um, because our hatred is corrupted by sin, just like everything else that we do. Uh, and so we don't hate like God hates, just like we don't love like God loves. Because we can't, because of our sinfulness. And so when we think of hatred, we think of sinful people, cruelty, torture, excess, oppression, violence, rage, vindictiveness, bitterness. We think of hatred as a sinful emotion. Because of our experience and what we see and how we understand hatred. But God's hatred does not, is not in any way sinful. God's hatred is perfect. It is right. It is just. It is good. It is good for God to stand in opposition to that which is evil and wicked. His hatred is perfect. His hatred is infinite. His hatred is immeasurable. And the writer of Hebrews tells us it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God because our God is a consuming fire. And so there is nothing sinful about God's hatred. God's hatred is right and just and true and perfect because that's who God is. And all of His attributes are perfect. He is perfect in all of His perfections. And his hatred is one of his perfect perfections. And even, you know, Psalm 139, uh, David, you know, David says, uses the term perfect hatred. <laughs> and, uh, and so, uh, so God's hatred is perfect. All right, so God is holy. People are sinners. We would expect a holy God to stand in opposition to sin. And God's hatred is, like all of His attributes, perfect, sinless, right, and true. Alright, so those summary statements bring us to this man called Esau. And Esau, like all humans, sinful even in his mother's womb. Guilty, condemned, a child of wrath, just as all the others, God's hatred of Esau is holy and just. Sinful, even from the mother's womb. Conceived in sin. An inheritor of the sinful nature passed down from Adam and Eve, just like every other person. Alright, so there's Esau. And God says, Esau, I have hated. And when we think about these things, that God is holy, we are sinful, God should be just, He should stand in opposition, that He is sinful, God's hatred is perfect. We, we do that math. 1 plus 2 plus 3 plus 4 equals Esau, I have hated. So what should surprise us is Jacob, I have loved. <laughs> That's what should surprise us. That's what should take us by surprise because guess who Jacob is? Jacob is a sinner. <laughs> Jacob is sinful. In fact, Jacob and Esau, they got the same mom and daddy. And, and in, uh, it's, it's interesting. This is, I had not considered that this until this week. But in Romans, Romans chapter 9, where Paul quotes this, he begins with Isaac and Ishmael. 
Isaac, God loved. Ishmael, God rejected. Well, you know, somebody, a skeptic, could say, well, you know, that makes sense to me because Ishmael's mother was that servant girl, that Egyptian servant. You know, so, so I understand how come God would reject Ishmael because of who his mama was. But Isaac, now his mom was Sarah. Abraham was his daddy. Abraham was Ishmael's daddy, but Hagar was his mom, so I can understand that. And, and, and so a skeptic can look at that and kind of explain that away. Well, maybe, you know, maybe it's because who, maybe Ishmael was rejected because of who his mother was. But then Paul doesn't stop with Isaac and Ishmael. He goes to Jacob and Esau. Jacob and Esau, guess what? Same mom and daddy. <laughs> same family. Conceived at the same time, they're twins. No difference in their, who their parents were. No difference in when they were conceived. And in fact, if you were going to use the human reasoning... Esau would be the ones accepted because he was the firstborn. And so, so, so Paul goes and he talks about Jacob and Esau. So, so here we've got Jacob and Esau. So just like Esau, Jacob is sinful in his mother's womb. And outside of his mother's womb, Jacob's sinful nature leads him into sinful actions. He's a liar. He's a cheater. He had four wives. He had an extremely dysfunctional family. The way he led his family caused his sons to hate their brother so much that they conspired to murder him and then decided that murdering him wouldn't profit them anything and so it would be better to sell him into slavery. At least we get some money out of that deal. Jacob did not deserve the love of God any more than Esau did. And yet the text says, Jacob, I have loved. From God's good pleasure to the praise of His glorious grace, God, in the counsel of His own will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, chose to look past Jacob and look thousands of years into the future and look at Jesus. And credit the sin of Jacob to the account of Jesus and to place Jacob in Christ and to love Jacob for Christ's sake. Simply because that was his plan and that was his purpose. Jacob was loved not because anything that he had done, but Jacob was loved because what? Jesus would do. And God determined to put Jacob in Christ. Because of the sinless life, the atoning death of Jesus, God could set His love on Jacob. And the resurrection of Jesus proves that that sacrifice was accepted and that God's, uh, that, that God, God's love in Christ that all that God loves in Christ are forgiven of their sins and given the free gift of eternal life. And so, Jacob and Esau both deserve God's opposition. But for God's purpose of grace, to the praise of the glory of His grace, He chose to put Jacob in Christ and therefore to forgive, to cleanse, and to love Jacob in Christ Jesus. And remember the context. Malachi is seeking to assure God's people that his purposes will be carried out. The people of Malachi's day doubt God's love. They had come through the exile. They were experiencing hard times. Edom was appearing to prosper while Israel was suffering. The, the, the people of Israel, and remember Jacob's name was later changed to Israel. He becomes the father of this nation. And so Jacob, Israel... Same thing, the people of Israel, the descendants of Jacob, the, 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 the nation that had come from Jacob, they were experiencing difficult times and they began to doubt God's love for them. And their doubt of God's love led them to careless living 
that we'll look at as we go through the rest of, of Malachi. They were kind of just going through the motions. They weren't bringing their best to worship. They weren't worshiping God as He demanded. They were violating their covenant uh, with each other. They were uh, breaking faith with the wife of their youth, marrying idolaters and foreign pagan women, and, uh, and, and, and withholding the tithe. So not taking care of their, their neighbor through the bringing of the tithe into the storehouse. Not taking care of the priest because neglecting the tithe. They were doing all of these things. And it all came from the fact that they doubted God's love for them. What's the point? Why do we go through all this to show our love for God when God's not showing love for us? And so they weren't faithful to their commitment. They weren't faithful to, uh, to God. And Malachi will call them to repentance as we go through this, but before he calls them to repentance, he reassures them of God's love. Verse 2, I have loved you, says the Lord. And they didn't believe it. Verse 2, you say, in what way have you loved us? Malachi says, I've loved you, says the Lord, in what way? We don't feel your love. We don't see your love. We're not getting what we would expect if we were loved by God. In what way have you loved us? You sent us into exile. You're allowing us to have difficult times. You're, you're allowing all these things, all this hard times, all this suffering. Our, our neighbors seem to be doing better than we are. In what way have you loved us? They didn't think God was treating them the way that He should. They expected health and wealth and prosperity, but times were hard. And so when the prophet assured them that God loved them, they asked in what way, in what way has he loved us? And the prophet simply reminds us, reminds them of God's sovereign grace. Same, same principle we talked about Sunday morning. God's sovereign grace. Jacob, have I loved? Why? God's sovereign grace. Esau, have I hated? Why? Because a holy God's going to stand in opposition to a sinful person. And so, uh, so the, the surprise is not that God hated Esau. The surprise is that God chose to love Jacob. And this is such an important point. Uh, when we think of God's sovereign grace, there, there are four... Uh, let's see, how many I got? Do I got four? Yep, four important truths. Number one, the promise and the purpose of God apply only to certain people. Not everybody is going to be saved. Not everybody is going to go to heaven. God's promise and God's purpose is to redeem sinful people to Himself for the praise of the glory of His grace. But guess what? A holy God is also glorified in His judgment of sinners, in His opposition to the wicked, in bringing justice to those who do evil. And so God is glorified by the salvation of sinners, he's also glorified by the, uh, the judgment of sinners and his wrath poured out upon sinners. He is glorified by both. And so, uh, you know, most people in the Bible Belt, back to the thing that things people in the Bible Belt believe that aren't true, you know, most people would say, oh yeah, I believe that, that it, not everybody goes to heaven, but, but, but when it comes down to really practicing it and thinking about it, you know, when you go to a funeral... Uh, it doesn't matter how evil or how wicked the, the, the person was that you're doing the, 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 that's being buried. Somehow or another, the preacher tries to convince you that he's in heaven. <laughs> when everybody knows that there wasn't any fruit from this guy's life, you know, maybe when he was nine years old, he walked down the aisle of a Baptist church and filled out a card and got baptized, but, but there's no fruit of salvation in his life. There's nothing that he ever did, you know, but, but when we talk about it, you know, doesn't matter. We all say, oh, he's in a better place. Well, I'm so glad he's not suffering now anymore. Even if there's no fruit of salvation in his life, that's kind of what, that's the way we speak about it. That's the way we talk about it, you know. So, so practically, in our practice, do, do we, are we universalists? Do we kind of think, well, that God loves everybody. Everybody's going to end up in heaven. Theologically, we'd say absolutely not. But in our practice, in the way we think about it, do we think that way? Well, this Simply, this, this shows us very clearly that not everybody's going to heaven. God, God's plan and purpose is not everybody, not everybody goes to heaven. 
Not everybody repents of their sins and puts their trust in Jesus Christ. Not everyone, not every sinner is redeemed. In fact, the Bible tells us those that are redeemed are a small number. The vast majority are not. Wide is the road. And easy is the way that leads to destruction. But narrow is the gate. Difficult is the way that leads to life. And only a few find it. And so this passage shows us that God's you know, normal response to sinners is opposition, rejection. What's special, what's unusual, what's extraordinary is God's choice to love some. To love some sinners. And, uh, um, and so, so, out of all the people of the earth, in Genesis chapter 11, the nations are created at Babel. In Babel, everybody's all together. They come together on the plains. They're speaking the same language. They're working together. They're cooperating together. God comes down and confuses them, confuses their languages and scatters them all across the earth. And in their adaptation, they develop different characteristics to adapt to their environment. Some people in the hot places have darker skin. People in the northern sun, uh, uh, cold places have lighter skin and lighter hair and different color eyes. And, and, and so all these adaptations, God created the nations in Genesis chapter 11. In Genesis chapter 12, He chooses one man to be the father of one nation out of all of the earth that will be His special possession, His treasured possession, the apple of His eye. One nation out of all the nations of the world God chooses in Genesis chapter 12. He creates the nations in Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 12, He chooses one man to be the father of many nations and Many nations come from Abraham, Isaac, and Ishmael. And then he has Keturah and has kids there too, but only one of those nations God chooses to be the apple of his eye. A vast minority. A small remnant. And then Paul even goes a step further in Romans chapter 6. I mean, sorry, chapter 9, verse 6. Romans chapter 9, verse 6. We read... Something else. They are not all Israel who are of Israel. So Paul even narrows it down further. Okay, God chose one nation out of all the nations of the world. He chose Israel. But guess what? Not everybody in Israel is Israel. <laughs> Just because you came from Jacob doesn't mean that God has set His love on you. And so, uh, um, so um, not even all of Israel are Israel. And so, uh, you know, Malachi tells us that God has loved Jacob and He's going to allow Jacob to rebuild Esau. He stands in opposition. Esau is going to be wiped out. He's going to try to rebuild. He's going to be wiped out again. And finally, the world's going to be read, rid of uh, Esau there's no nation of Edom, Edom on the earth today. Uh, we talked about that when we talked about Obadiah. Remember, Obadiah prophesied the, the complete destruction of the people of Edom. Uh, nation totally wiped out. Totally annihilated by God's wrath. And so, uh, so, so God said, I, I chose Jacob. chose to build up Jacob and tear down Esau. But then uh, we see in Romans chapter 6, I mean chapter 9, verse 6, that even those... Not everybody in Israel is of Israel. Not everybody in Israel, not everybody's descended from Jacob is, are the people of God. And then we certainly see that play out in the New Testament as Israel rejects the Savior, Israel rejects the Christ, and Israel is set aside and the church becomes the people of God in the New Testament. People from every tribe, every nation, every tongue, and every ethnicity in the New Covenant. But, again, from those tribes and tongues and nation, not all of them, very small remnant, narrow is the way. Difficult is path, and only a few find it. So, 
God pur- purposed to redeem sinful people to himself, but he did not purpose to redeem all people. In fact, he purposed to leave the majority of people in their sin and to redeem a small, faithful remnant. All right, so first point we get from this is God's purpose of redemption does not include all people, only some. Number two, the people that are among God's people are not God's people because of anything in themselves. All right, so that God, those that God saves, He saves them not because of anything about them, because they are right here just like the ones who are not part of the plan and purpose. And so the people that are God's people are not God's people because of anything in themselves. They become God's people because God chooses to set His love on them. They become His people not by birth. Jacob and Esau had exactly the same parents. They were conceived at exactly the same time. They got the same daddy, the same mama. They were twins. And so the promise of God, the purpose of God was not because of who their parents were. It was not by birth. It was not by nationality because not, of all, not even all of Jacob are Israel. Not everyone of Israel descended from Jacob are recipients of God's promise. Again, a very faithful word. And even the, the same is true in the day of Malachi. The vast majority are still over there in Babylon, Persia. Only a very small number came back to rebuild Jerusalem. And so not everyone in Israel were recipients of God's promise. And so it was not because of anything that they would do or anything that they would not do because God's except, you know, God's setting His love on Jacob and Esau was announced while they were in the womb. And Paul says that in Romans in, in, in Romans 9, um, in verse 11, For the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or any evil, that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand, not of works, but of Him who was called. It was said to her, The older shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Alright, so not because of who they were, who their parents were, what they did or what they did not do. Simply God's purpose of grace. And then <laughs> Paul, just like Malachi anticipates the objection, you know, Malachi says, I've loved you. Well, in what way have you loved us? Well, Paul says, As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have written. And then he anticipates them to say, well, then God's not righteous. Verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. Certainly not. Um, God is the creator. He is the potter. And he has a right to make pots that will go to the temple and serve him. And the potter also has a right to make pots that will sit under the hole in the outhouse. (laughs) Right? Potter has that right. He has a right to create pots for holy purposes, and he has the right to create pots for profane purposes. So Potter's right, right? And and so, you know, what what we, what we should, you know, a lot of times people think, well, you know, there's this whole, whole batch of humanity, and God walks through and says, well, I'm going to take you, I'm take you, I'm take you, I'm take you, take you, take you, and I'm leave all the rest. That's not the way it works. No, God creates people for honorable purposes. And He creates people that will experience His justice. Just like the potter. Creates some pots for the temple, some pots for the toilet. God's purpose of grace is He will show the beauty of His grace and the depth of His love by also allowing some people to experience His wrath and reveal His righteousness and His justice. God is glorified in both. And so, and so we look at that and we say, oh, that's not fair. Paul says, is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For what did he say to Moses? I will have mercy on whoever I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whoever I will have compassion. That's as right as the Creator. 
So, what, so it, then it's not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very person, I, purpose, I raised you up, that I may show my power in you, that my name may de- be declared in all the earth. I raised you up, Pharaoh, for my glory. I created you for my glory. And I am glorified in judging you for your disobedience, for your rebellion, for your sin. Therefore he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. You will say to me, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? So Paul Paul anticipates another objection. Well, if that's true, if God creates some pots for the temple and some pots for the toilet, how can He be justified in crushing the toilet pot? Because that's the way He made it. <laughs> uh, and so, if God created Pharaoh, how can He be justified in judging Pharaoh? Um, and so, why does He still find fault? Who has resisted His will? Pharaoh did what he was created to do. Verse 20, But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Will the toilet pot say, Why did you make a toilet pot? (laughs) No, it doesn't. And so, uh, uh, does the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God, wanting to show his wrath and make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had prepared beforehand from glory. So, if God did not create vessels for destruction, then the vessels of honor would never know from which they were saved. And so they would never know how much to praise God for the glory of His grace. What does God save us from when He saves us? He saves us from Himself. He saves us from His wrath. You know, another thing you hear about, uh, uh, people talk about hell like Satan's in charge of hell. Not true. Satan's not in charge of hell. Satan is in hell experiencing God's wrath. God is in charge of hell. And God is pouring out His righteous indignation, His righteous wrath on those who have uh, clung to their sin, refused to repent and believe in Jesus. God is in charge of hell, judging Satan, judging the false prophet, and judging every single person who, uh, who died in their sins, did not repent and believe in Jesus. No, he is, he is the chief getting punisher. <laughs> yeah, like he's in charge. And, and you hear people say that all the time. Yeah, no, it's God that is torturing you in hell. And Satan is also an object of torture. We do. Yep, yep. You know, and that's, that's what David says in Psalm 139. If I make my bed in hell, you are there. Because that's, hell is... God's wrath, God's righteous wrath, God's righteous indignation, God's punishment. And so what does a person who gets saved get saved from? God's wrath, God's judgment. He saves us from Himself. And when Jesus was dying on the cross and bearing the weight of our sin, He did not say, Satan, why are you torturing me? He said, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was experiencing God's wrath for the sins of all who believe. And... Uh, and that's what crushed Satan's head. And so, uh, so, when, so, if God did not allow evil and allow wickedness and set Himself in opposition of it, we would never know the glory of His grace. We would never know from what He saved us. We would never know how the price that Jesus paid. When we see what happens to the wicked... Uh, to those who die in their sin, then we get a better idea of what Jesus experienced when He died on the cross, when He saved every single person who would ever believe in Him from that wrath. That's what 
he saves us from. And so he experienced that in our place. He took that in our place. He took God's hatred of sin and our sin, our wickedness, our evil. He took that so that God's hatred of our sin would be satisfied so that He could show us mercy and grace. And so, so uh, this, this truth, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated, teaches us not everybody gets saved. And, and, not, and the people that are God's people are not God, not, don't become God's people because anything in them, anything, nothing. And then third, this assures us and assures the people of Malachi's day that God's purpose is being worked out. God purposed to create vessels for destruction and vessels for honor. And guess what's going to happen at the last day? The vessels that were created for destruction are going to get destroyed. The vessels that God created for honor are going to be honored, glorified. It's going to happen. And why is it going to happen? Because it is dependent upon God and not on us. If it was dependent on us, it wouldn't happen. <laughs> if, if, if Jacob, if, if Jacob's, if, if God's love for Jacob was dependent on what Jacob did, <laughs> Jacob would, would, it would it, he was a liar. He did all those things that God hates. Jacob did all those things, and yet God loved him. Not because of Jacob, but because God, purpose of grace. And Israel, the nation, if it was dependent on Israel, the idolatry, the, uh, you know, getting sent into exile, all the sin and wickedness, if, if, if God's purpose of grace was dependent on Israel, and then when they send, when he sends his son, they reject him and kill him, if God's purpose of grace was dependent on Israel, it would have been a disaster. But it wasn't dependent on Israel, it was dependent on God. And because it's dependent on God, because it's God's work from beginning to end, uh, because it's for His purpose of grace, God's purpose is being worked out. And the people in Malachi's day say, we don't see it. It's hard. Life's hard. Life's really hard. It's not meeting our expectations. Our circumstances are impossible. Our enemies are prospering and harassing us and People are getting sick and dying, and people are, are, are discouraged, and people are, 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 aren't worshiping you right, and people are divorcing the wife of their youth and marrying a, a pagan idolater, and, 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 and we're not living up to the covenant. We're not taking care of our neighbor by bringing the tithe. We're not taking care of the priest by bringing the tithe into the storehouse. If it's dependent on us, it's not going to happen. But the whole message of Malachi is that it begins in verse 1, I have loved you, says the Lord. And because I have loved you, then chapter 3, verse 17 will happen. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I make them my jewels, and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. Then you shall again discern between the righteousness and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve Him. And so, because I have loved you, all this mess in between isn't going to stop. At the end, you'll be mine. You're my jewels. And that can happen because it's all God and not any us. The only way we have assurance that evil will do, be defeated is because God is going to defeat it, not because we are. And so He will stand in opposition to evil and He will ultimately defeat evil. And so, uh, his purpose is being worked out. And then four, I already jumped ahead. The outcome is secure. The outcome is certain. The only way the outcome is secure is because it's God who carries it out. And God is infinitely wise. He planned it. He is all-powerful. He is carrying it out. And he is all-loving. He will ensure that his people are become his jewels and they are redeemed. If it was up to Jacob... It wouldn't have been successful. Jacob was always trusting his own abilities, his own cunning, his own strategies, his own devices, his own ingenuity, his own skills. If it would have been dependent on Jacob, the plan would have failed. But the plan will not fail 
because it's not dependent upon Jacob. It's dependent on God and His character and His attributes. Um, Israel was a stiff-necked and rebellious people, but the plan was not dependent on them. It was dependent upon God and His character. And even when Israel murdered the Son of God, guess what? That was all a part of God's plan. <laughs> plan to redeem sinful people to Himself. To treat Jesus as if He had lived our life of sin so that He could treat us as we had lived His life of perfect righteousness, as MacArthur says very well. And so uh, the outcome is secure because it doesn't depend on us. It depends on God from beginning to end. And so God's purpose is certain and sure. And if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us, then He will freely give us all things. So in all things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. And so Romans chapter 9 comes after Romans chapter 8. How is it that we can say that nothing will separate us from the love of God? Romans chapter 8. How can we say that? Because of Romans chapter 9. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And so, not everybody. And the ones that God has mercy, it's not because of anything but them. It's because God said, and because God is in charge, the outcome is secure. But the people in Malachi's day don't see it. But the promise is secure. Malachi begins with, Jacob I have loved. And it ends with, at the end, no matter what happens in between Malachi 1 and Malachi 4, at the end you will be jewels in my crown. Because it's not dependent on you, it's dependent on me, God says. And so, uh, God says, I've loved you. And I've loved you not because of anything in you, but just simply because I love you. And that's good news. <laughs> because I have chosen to love you, I will redeem you. And my plan and my purpose and my promise will be fulfilled in you. All right. Questions about that? Well, you're very kind. Thank you. Jacob, have I love? That's right. Fair is, fair is, everybody goes to hell. That's fair. Yep. Now, you know, and 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 of course, the scripture also, and we're going to see as we go through Malachi, the people have a responsibility. I've loved you, and because I've loved you, here's how you ought to live. He doesn't say, if you obey my law, I will love you. No, I have loved you, and because I love you, here's the things that you need to do. Because part of His love is to make us holy. And how does He make us holy? By us walking according to His law and doing that which is pleasing. So, so we have responsibility. We have to repent and believe. We have to work with the Holy Spirit to do the law. And we're gonna, and that's coming next week. <laughs> you know where uh, where where God rebukes them and says, you know, I loved you. I'm your father, and you should honor me. Uh, and you've dishonored me. And they say, well, how have we dishonored you? We'll answer that next week. <laughs> so there's, you know, and so yeah, it doesn't mean, because God loves us, it doesn't matter how we live. It matters very much how we live, because why did He love us? He loved us to make us like Himself. Those that He called, He predestined, he predestined that they be conformed to the image of His Son, Christ Jesus. So that's the purpose. And so it does matter very much how we live and what we do, but we do that because God has set His love on us, not Him setting His love on us because we do those things. And that's next week, or next bunch of weeks, because there's lots of things that they're doing wrong <laughs> that Malachi calls out. Yeah, you know, I, I, Malachi would probably not have made the application that Paul did under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit 400 years later. Um, 
you know, Malachi's talking to these people, and then Paul takes what Malachi said and makes a broader application. You know, um, uh, so, so under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul takes what Malachi said and, and shows the fuller meaning. That pro- yeah, probably Malachi. And, and Peter talks about the prophets writing and saying things that they didn't really know what they were saying, you know. <laughs> And that's why Paul, call it, Paul calls it the mystery. You know, there's, there's the mystery, you know, where, where especially the, the time, what well, we talked about when we had the Lord's Supper, we talked about Isaiah 53, you know, and, and um, the, the Ethiopian eunuch, you remember, nobody thought Isaiah 53 talked about Jesus or the Messiah, the Christ, because this guy suffers, the Messiah's not going to suffer. You know, and so, so all this and everything between the first and second coming of Jesus was a mystery to the prophets. They, they had no clue. They, they wrote about it, but they didn't understand it. And that's why when he came, they didn't recognize him. <laughs> well, and they, didn't, and they didn't have the indwelling Holy Spirit like we do. That's right. They didn't. They didn't have the indwelling Holy Spirit. Amen. That's exactly right. That's right. Helpful. Um, and uh, and again, just a very difficult concept because our minds are so limited and so. You know, we have that. that we have a, a, a skewed concept of love, and we have a skewed concept of hate because of how, what we think and what we interpret has been affected by our sin. And so, uh, so a holy God is going to be in opposition to people. Yep, that, that's right. That's exactly right. And, and the excess, you know, where, you know, the, the Old Testament law is an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And, and our law is an eye, eye or two eyes for an eye, <laughs> two teeth for a tooth. I'm not going to get even. I'm going to get one up. <laughs> so it's, it's, uh, right. And and God's opposition is against evil, and our opposition is against somebody who gets in my way. You know, somebody who I perceive is keeping me from getting what I want, and that's what the baby. You know, why why do mothers murder their babies? Well, it's inconvenient to me. It's in my way. It's going to change my life. I can't afford it. I'm not ready. I'm not through school. You know, and so what do they do? Murder their baby. Because it's inconvenience in my way, and and amen. All right. Well, I appreciate y'all, and I appreciate the freedom that y'all give me to <laughs> to study and 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 share, and and the words of encouragement that y'all that y'all say to me. Um, it's just I appreciate y'all, <laughs> and I appreciate the way y'all y'all encourage me. Let's pray together. Lord God, once again, we just stand humbled before Your Word. This truth just cuts any pride that we might have, just wipes it out. Because if You loved us, it's not because of anything about us. We don't deserve it. We didn't earn it. Not because of our wisdom or our, our, our discernment or how hard we studied. Lord, it was simply Your goodness and Your kindness that You chose to love us in Christ. And, and so, Lord, this truth humbles us, breaks us, but it also exalts You. And that You would so love that You would send Your Son and pour out Your wrath, Your hatred, Your indignation 
of our sin on Him so that You might show us mercy and grace. Lord, we stand in awe of Your your grace and Your mercy. And we give You praise and we give You thanks. And God, we pray that Your Spirit would now enable us because of Your love, because of being loved by You, to reflect Your image, to reflect Your love, to love our neighbor, to love one another, and Lord, to rightly oppose evil and unrighteousness and wickedness, that You would help us to be more like You. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you all.